If you have your Bibles with you, our reading comes from Isaiah chapter 9, or you can follow along on page 7 of the program. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. So this Advent, we are in this short series about the things that Jesus' coming, his arrival, unveils or brings to fresh realization to us. And so we've looked a little bit about that history is moving to a point and it has a purpose, which gives us great confidence to know that our lives are not meaningless. Life is not just a series of endless cycles, but things are headed to to a destiny. Last week, we looked at suffering and we began to see that one of the things that Jesus unveils is that suffering comes to an end. And on the other side of it is something that is amazing. And so it gives us the power to trust God, even in difficulties, to know that he is trustworthy and true. Today we come to something very simple, very uh, easy to grasp intellectually, and yet sometimes very hard to let it soak down into our souls in a way that's rich and meaningful for us. And it's the simple idea expressed here in Isaiah that Jesus has come for us, for us, for you, not for somebody else, but for you. In the late 90s, uh, Kate and I and our three little kids at the time, like seven, five, and three, lived in Atlanta, Georgia, where I worked on staff of the church there. And we had talked about and decided to get a dog And without letting the kids know, Kate did a bunch of research to make sure we got a hypoallergenic dog that would be good with little kids. And so we researched, we picked out a puppy, uh, we bought this puppy, again, without our kids knowing it, a little Boston Terrier that we named Georgia because we lived in Georgia, and so that was her name. And so Kate and our youngest daughter, Julia, who wasn't in school, one school day went and picked up the puppy, brought it back home, and we waited in our front yard for our older two kids to get off the school bus. And while we were waiting, our next door neighbor, who was a friend of Julia's, a little girl named Hannah, came over as well. And so Julia and Hannah were playing with this puppy. The school bus comes up. 
our kids get off the school bus and they're just ecstatic. They're excited about this puppy. They're playing with it. And after a few minutes, uh, our older son, Bennett, turns to Kate and he says, Mom, I really wish we had a dog like this. And Kate says to Bennett, Bennett, this is our dog. We got it. This is yours. And the shift in uh, excitement like went up a notch, right? Like no longer was this just a dog. This was our dog. And our kids were so ecstatic and excited and happy and joyful about this. Now, the day didn't change. Our kids didn't change. The puppy didn't change. What changed? The only thing that changed about that scenario that went from exciting to like really exciting was ownership. This was a dog for us and it changed everything. That's what this passage is talking about. That Jesus isn't just a savior. He's not just a son. He's not just a good God. He is those things for you. Many of us are admirers of Jesus. Many of us uh, have looked to Jesus our whole lives, maybe um, ever since childhood, and have really deeply admired him. Many of us have sought to follow the teachings of Jesus. We've read the Bible or parts of the Bible, and they've had a profound impact on us, and we've really sought to model our behavior based on that teaching, that person that we've read about. Many of us uh, have even desired a savior, somebody to help us, to really step in and help change our lives. This passage today has a really important message for all of us, regardless of where we are, that this is a savior, not just in the abstract. This is a savior for you. Isaiah tells us in this passage a little bit about what a savior does and a little bit about what a savior is, what their character is. But before we talk about those things that Isaiah talks about, I think it's important for us to understand a little bit about prophetic communication in the Bible. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what a prophet does, what a prophet says, how to read a word of prophecy and apply it rightly to our lives. There's a lot of misapplication about prophecy out there. I'm sure you've seen it. I'm sure you've heard of it. I'm sure it's floating around the internet on your feeds these days. But what a biblical prophet does is whenever they speak, there are multiple horizons that they're talking about. Always, in a biblical prophecy, they're reminding the people about something that's happened in the past. God has been faithful in the past. And then they're saying he is going to do something now in the present. But that present thing is incomplete and not total because there's a future event that it's actually pointing to as well. And in fact, not just a future event, but sometimes several future events that the prophecy is outlying or trying to get people to see. 
When we come here to this passage in Isaiah, it's very familiar to us, right? We've, we've heard this every Christmas. You've sung or heard sing Handel's Messiah. And so these words, uh, you cannot hear them without hearing the music around them, right? And so we're people who are very um, surrounded by the richness of this prophecy that would have been impossible for Isaiah's original audience to know about. They knew the exile, <laughs> that the exodus, I mean, and that God had delivered them from Egypt. That is alluded to here. And so they get that about Isaiah's prophecy. And they lived in a time and an age when their, their kings were faltering, their political leaders were faithless, where there were foreign uh, powers, namely the Assyrian Empire, that was pressing upon them. And they felt a time where like they were being threatened. And this word that Isaiah speaks to them was words of comfort and assurance that even with those things happening, God would remember their estate. He would come and deliver them. He would not abandon his people. And there was an immediate fulfillment to a degree, but not the final degree of this passage when King Hezekiah came to the throne, who was a good king, who called his people back to worship, who reopened worship for Israel. And so there was a sense that Isaiah's words were coming true, and yet Hezekiah was just a man. There are parts of this prophecy that as they read them, they realized there needs to be more. You and I, looking back on this, look back and we see Jesus born in a manger as the sun, as the king, as the light that's come into the world. As so many things that this passage of Isaiah lays out. And we look back on that and they would have looked forward to that. But even you and I, looking back on the events of the birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, know there are still things in this passage that Isaiah is talking about that are still ahead of us. They're still in the future. There's still a hope for a final revelation, a final unveiling, a final apocalypse of this truth that God is for us, right? We long for it. We hope for it. It's etched into this season of Advent. The season of Advent kind of stands and looks back, but we also are looking ahead to the final fulfillment of these words like Isaiah's, because we still know, like biblical prophecy, there is something no human can ultimately fulfill that is still waiting. So it's important just to realize a little framework for biblical prophecy, that it looks back, it looks to the moment, and it looks ahead. The already, the immediate, and the not yet. Here in this passage, in the first five verses, Isaiah lays out what this son does as a savior. What is the mission of a savior? What does a savior do? What is their job description? And here Isaiah is laying out what a savior will do for his people. This is what a savior always does. This is what a savior will always do. He will, in verse 1 and 2, restore what has been lost. A Savior will always restore what has been lost. There's beautiful words here about gloom and being the one who is in anguish will be relieved. 
that the latter times will be made glorious, that darkness will give way to light. And so this promise is that the one who comes will restore what has been lost. Again, as I said, Isaiah was speaking to people who were feeling a sense of loss. Israel's glory days were over. Solomon was a passing memory. Their political rivals were getting the upper hand. The worship of God was falling into disfavor. (laughs) Sound a little familiar to us? But the promise was that God does not forget his people and he will restore what has been lost. And he did that to them in a measure. As we look forward, we see that that is what God is doing in Jesus, that he does not forget his people. He is laying the groundwork for a great restoration. And even in Jesus, we still long for more. We still know his kingdom is not complete. And so we know there is a final day coming where that will be made manifest. But in the moment, there is very real hope based on the past, based on God's promise, based on his work of never forgetting his people. God will, a savior will restore what has been lost. In verses three and four, he also says a savior will return joy. It talks about the removal of the yoke of burden, that it will be like the relief of a good harvest. People economically in Isaiah's time, their whole economy was based on whether the harvest was good or bad. If the harvest was good and plentiful, the whole year was going to go fine. The whole year would be good. There would no, be no worry about hunger and worry about having to scramble. But there'd be a sense of relief and rest and peace and stability. There would be not just events of people getting married, people having celebrations, but there would be a true sense of joy attached to those things. A savior, a redeemer, will bring a restoration of joy. And then in verses 5, there's some language that can be very off-putting or sound scary. Biblical prophecy often sounds scarier than it actually is. But what the promise here is that every trampling boot, every bloody garment will be burned is a promise of the end of warfare. The opposition will not always oppose. There will be an end. Evil will be eradicated. Those who oppose will be annihilated. God's promise of a savior, of a redeemer, is the promise of the security of peace being so firmly established that in other places it talks about the plow the swords being beat into plowshares. Here again is that language, that there will be no war, no more. Previously, in Isaiah's time, there were respites from warfare, but war still came. In Jesus, there's a promise of the end of warfare, the end of opposition. And at the cross, we see a promise and an actual commitment that death itself has been destroyed, 
that sin has been annihilated. And yet you and I know the very real effects of sin still today. The D-Day has happened on sin, but there's still a cleanup operation that's happening that is very real and very powerful, and we feel the consequences of it very deeply. And so this promise of an end of warfare, an end of violence, an end of civil unrest is a very real promise that fuels us to see that the work of a Savior is still coming in the future. So that's what a Savior does. A Savior finds us, as the kids said. A Savior uh, restores what's been lost. A Savior returns the joy. The Savior relieves us from warfare. But the power of this passage is really in, pass, in verse 6 and 7 about what is the character of the Savior. It's what he does. But what he does flows out of who he is. And here it portrays who a Savior is as first and foremost a child. A child. This is not what you're expecting. I'm sure Isaiah's audience was not expecting the proclamation of a child as the one who would be this savior. For us, we have this front row seat to understanding better than Isaiah's audience did what a child savior would look like. Because we see a child savior come to us in Bethlehem. We see a savior born in absolute poverty, in absolute weakness, in absolute vulnerability, and yet marshalling the ranks of heaven to announce his birth. That God sends from the furthest reaches of the world people to acknowledge the priority of his birth. That the very human shepherds come to bow at his throne, a stable. This child who is the most vulnerable is the most powerful because he is God in flesh. Not just a child. He is a child who, as this passage says, is a son of the Most High. And this son of the Most High has these most incredible features and attributes associated with him. His name is so powerful. It says here his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, a wonderful counselor isn't just somebody you can easily talk to about your problems. In this day and age, in Isaiah's framework, a wonderful counselor would have been a person of wisdom, someone like Daniel, someone like the Magi, someone who is able to discern the times, to understand the ways to go about accomplishing a king's purpose for success. And so a wonderful counselor is somebody who is able to marshal wisdom and resources to accomplish an end. It's a picture of wisdom. That he's mighty God. This child who is a son is also mighty God. He is God who is able to accomplish his will because he alone has the power to execute his, his thoughts effortlessly. A mighty God is a picture of power. He is everlasting Father. 
This child who is the son is also eternal. (laughs) He is not one who has a birthday and a death day. He is one who exists from all time before, who will exist forever after. He has no beginning and no end. He is eternal. And so his perspective is such that he is able to accomplish and do his work of Savior because all things are under his control. He is the prince of peace. He's not the prince of warfare. He is the prince of peace who has come to end warfare. Conflict, animosity, debates, hatred, rioting. He has come to establish instead a kingdom of peace that will pervade every square inch of the universe. He is the prince of peace. And then the end of this passage begins to sketch out the permanence of his kingdom. It's a kingdom that will begin and unfold and advance and never stop. It's a kingdom of extensive power that extends its influence over all of creation. There's a sense of permanence about this kingdom that this king brings because it's rooted in his own character of permanence and eternity. It will be full of justice and righteousness. Not only will warfare cease, but in the place of warfare and conflict will flourish justice and righteousness. This kingdom will not be the absence of things. It will be the presence of the fullness of the good things that we desire and long for and hope for, but only see partially in our lives. Justice. Righteousness. As common as air in this kingdom that is coming. And then the final words of this passage are absolutely astounding because it says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's sort of a seal of promise on this passage that gives us absolute confidence that the entire being of God himself is committed to this agenda. There's no ability for it to fail. If it were to fail, God himself would not exist. And so this is the promise that Isaiah lays out for us. This is the hope that we have in a son who is a savior. That he restores what's lost. He returns the joy. He relieves us from warfare. That he is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, the prince of peace. And his kingdom will have no end. It will contain justice and righteousness because his zeal will do this for us. But I left out one thing in that amazing sketch of the king and his character. All those things that I just mentioned can help us admire Jesus. They can help us understand who he is and what he's come and his character and who he, what he's about. 
But the information you and I most need in this passage is the simplest thing that's said. That this child, this Savior, this one who is bringing this kingdom is for us. In the King James, for unto us. For unto us is what you and I most need these days. To turn this passage from information into admiration and worship. Luther, this was one of his favorite passages. He preached on it, uh, I, I came across at least 16 times. He preached on this one passage. And here in this passage, one of his sermons, he says this, this young child in a crib in Bethlehem is your child sent and given to you. The miracle of to us is almost as great as the virgin birth itself. Children are born to their parents, but only this child is born to all of us. We who toil, we who are deep in sin, are the recipients of this gift of grace. For us, a child is born. The difference between a child to admire and a child to worship is in for us. For you who are weary, it's the end of 2020. There is nobody here that's not weary of 2020. Can I get an amen? <laughs> it has been a horrible year. It has been terrible on so many fronts. It has been a wake-up call to a lot of us who had gotten complacent about just life going on as normal, right? It's a year that has produced tremendous weariness. Just our daily lives feels like a race through mud, right? Just to go to the grocery store, it feels like a race through mud. You are weary. <laughs> we are weary. What does the weary one need? You need to know that this one is for you. For you. He has come to redeem what has been lost, to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. You need to know that there is a Savior for you. Also, there, there are those of us, for us, who feel defeated, who our faith seems just barely hanging on, a smoldering wick. Feels like it will take just a little breath in order to snuff it out. For those of us who are feeling defeated, where our faith feels flimsy, for you, he comes to return joy. For you. For you who are caught up in culture wars, and battles on the internet. He has come for you. He has come for you to tell you his kingdom, his peace, his righteousness is what needs to prevail. It's what you're really hungry for. To you, you need to know that he has come to remove warfare and to bring you peace. For you, with doubts about the character of God. For you, he reveals who he is in the gentleness and goodness of this child who is God in the flesh, who is born 
for you. I love sticky notes. You should just go to my office and you'll see a lot of sticky notes. I love, outside of sticky notes, whiteboards. Whiteboards and sticky notes are my jam. I love those things because it's like I get my ideas out onto something out there. I'd like you to do one thing with sticky notes or a whiteboard or a piece of paper or if you're just the kind of person who can do this mentally, do this this week. I'd love for you to have one sticky note that says, for me. And I'd like you to list the places where you're feeling the weight. Where do you feel a need for God in your life? It can be something that's pretty obvious. It could just be one major thing that you're really feeling that I need for me, God, to show up in this place. And would you just list that? And then I would like you to take another sticky note or another column and say on the top, a child is born to. For me, a child is born to. And would you this week just look over this passage? Would you, you can just rip out this page, it's okay. <laughs> take it home, stick it in your Bible, stick it in your date planner, whatever. And would you go through this week and circle or list or draw or whatever you do, the things where this son is for you. You may be someone in need of peace and you need to hear that he is the Prince of Peace. You may be somebody who's weary and needs to know that he is a mighty God. Whatever it is, would you just put those two lists side by side and use them to reflect on that he is a God for you. For our kids to receive a new puppy into our family took only the news that she was ours. It was only the announcement, right? That's all they needed. They were ready. They were eager. They were waiting. Even when they didn't know they wanted a puppy, right? And so all it took for us, for them to adopt Georgia, <laughs> to welcome her in, to receive her into our family, was the news, this dog is for you. Our lives can seem complex, but fundamentally, it's the same problem. We have an announcement of a Savior for you. And all you need to do is simply welcome him in. Because he has come. He is a son given for you. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government, all our problems shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, because he is for you. Let's pray. Father, help us to welcome you in. You've already made the announcement in Isaiah 
that this child is born for us. This season, this day, this week, help us to welcome you in, to receive you well. And with the result of that be, Lord, you would transform our lives to reflect this coming kingdom of truth and justice and peace and plenty and rest and joy. Make us into the image of what you promised that you will bring, we pray. Amen.